Before we get to our guest, a quick message from our sponsor. Back in June of 2020, I had COVID and I still have long COVID. And one of the symptoms of long COVID is insomnia. I'll wake up at two or three in the morning and can't get back to sleep for two or three, four hours. And it kind of ruins the whole day next day because you don't have any energy. So what did I do? I called Mike Lindell at my pillow and I got the entire sleep system. I have the mattress topper. I have the Giza sheets, which my colleague Christine Dolan says are regal. I have the my pillow, the my pillows themselves, and I have the comforter, which feels like a grandmother's house. It's so warm and cozy. And I have the regal duvet cover on on top of this comforter. So I have the entire sleep system. I literally work all day long. I'm exhausted. I lay down in this sleep system and literally just wake up the next morning. It's amazing how well I sleep. I, I can't get can't wait to get back to it. So what can you do? You can go to MyPillow.com and use promo code CDM and get the best discounts that Mike has to offer right now for the entire sleep system. But don't just get the sleep system. If you're buying household products, make sure to check with Mike Lindell first, promo code CDM to get the best prices. He has over 600 products. Don't go shop at the corporate communists and the big box retailers. Go to Mike first, support the patriotic movement, support free media at CDM, Use promo code CDM at MyPillow.com to get the best discounts and sleep really well going forward. And now let's get to our guest. So today in American Conversations, we are welcoming Judge Tom Marcel. Tom, thank you for joining us in this conversation, a, a, a topic that most people in America do not know about, COVID and health quarantines. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. So, uh, Judge, you're a city judge in Coho, New York. You're running for the New York State Supreme Court. Um, yes. And uh, but we're here today to to definitely promote the fact that you're running because you need to be reelected because of what you've done in a case that was just recently brought to my attention is that the New York State wants to quarantine people. And you got involved in this case that Bobby Ann Fox uh, initiated, and she found out about the quarantines and, on the books, and she wanted to, she filed the lawsuit, and then uh, I guess it was the U.S. Attorney's Office brought it New York Attorney General. New York Letitia Attorney James. General, Letitia James, then decided after Bobby Ann Fox filed it in the state court that they wanted to remove it to the federal court to drag it out. So did you know about the quarantines on the books at the time? Prior to talking to Bobby Ann, I had heard about it because I was doing some COVID stuff uh, to help children with masks in uh, New York, where they were challenging in federal court, ironically enough, the legitimacy of making children wear masks and that Wearing a mask obviously inhibits your freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and not only yours, but to understand others, because so much of our communication is 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 by visual cue. Right. So we were in the middle of that, and I became aware of it on on the margins, and mm -hmm. then I got a call from Bobby Ann, who explained the whole thing to me, and I said, "Look, I I have a very limited bandwidth, but anytime you should need help with it." I'd be more than happy to help. We talked about ideas, but she carried the ball until the attorney general went. She filed in state court and the attorney general tried to move the case to federal court. And the reason was that the federal court 
she already had a trial date in the state court that was like 10 days away. And the federal court, uh, the motion practice alone would have taken nine months to a year to complete. And uh, my estimation was this was a delay tactic. They didn't want the case in federal court. They just wanted to be able to stop it, mostly pre-election. Uh, and it was just that that simple. Uh, and Bobby Ann called me up because she doesn't practice in the federal courts. I've practiced in the federal courts. I've, I won a case before the United States Supreme Court, and I've spent many years arguing all up and down the federal courts through this country. And uh, we made e responsive emergency motions to have it sent back to state court. And within the week, we were back, back on track, and she ultimately did a great job prevailing there. She certainly did. Um, and, and now we find that, in fact, it is uh, that, that Letitia James and the governor of New York, who also are up for re-election, um, have challenged the appeal or they've filed to challenge the appeal, although they haven't filed the the um, appeal pleading at this point in time. What, what did you think about this? I mean, the fact that I mean, just just the whole notion of quarantine in the state of New York. Right. So. The notion of quarantine is an ancient notion, but it required a bunch of things to happen before the government could take you out of your house and quarantine you or even quarantine you in the house. It required doctors. It required notice. It required uh, a judicial officer being involved. What made this so dangerous and so unique is that they erased all that procedure. The due process no part of it. Yes. And that, that's, that is the main thing about it. You have, the governor could order you quarantined. You could be taken away from your family, be kept from a, a judge, not even knowing the reason why they quarantined you uh, until, you know, we well into the process. Uh, and that is a real problem, right? The thing that separates uh, free countries from authoritarian countries is that when the authoritative, the governor makes an order, you have a right to be heard by a judge before they can take away your liberty and your freedom. And what uh, this really kind of, uh, this quarantine order reversed that, right? It, it, it allowed the governor under quote unquote emergency powers to override the constitution of New York in the United States. And that's now that hasn't been done. And that's why it was such a serious case. So so let me ask you this. I mean, what's your understanding either politically or legally how this got under you know got on the books uh under the tenure of uh, Governor Cuomo? I mean, why would he do something like this? Uh well, the, 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 this, the quarantine regulation really came under Hochul. Uh, there, was a, a, there was a law proposed in the Assembly and the Senate to do this. Oh, and when Cuomo was, when Cuomo was when, governor. When Cuomo was governor, but it didn't come out of the se Assembly or Senate. Now, Hochul assumes the governorship. She decides that she would love to have this power. And instead of passing it, as is required by our state's constitution, you know, the, it's, it's, it's a kind of fundamental civics. The legislature 
passes the law, the governor enforces the law, and the judges interpret and decide controversies that arise under the law. She wanted to take all three powers of, to herself, right? One, she didn't want to wait around for the Senate legislature to make the law. And when she adopted the regulation, she took the judges out of the process. I mean, it, it was shocking on so many levels. Do you think, do you think, do you think, I mean, why, why would, I mean, why, when you take a look at so much of the shift right now in America, whether it's, it's uh, the religious exemptions in New York, California, Maine, Connecticut, uh, when you take a look at uh, Dr. Governor Gavin Newsom in California wants to basically, you know, doctors can't can't have a conversation that disagrees with Anthony Fauci, for instance, under the new law in California. Whatever the narrative is, the doctors are supposed to go along with the protocol, the forced protocol about remdesivir in hospitals that we're finding the pattern across the United States. If you go in and you might go in for a broken foot, but if you're tested in the hospital for COVID, all of a sudden, you know, you're put on remdesivir, even though you say, I don't want to be on remdesivir. And we're finding, you know, a lot of stories about that. What's your take, Judge, on seeing the advancement of forced, it comes under health, you know, because quarantine is a health issue. Remdesivir is a health issue. Um, hospital protocols comes under health. Doctors come under health. What's your take from a legal perspective of, about anything that's forced on people, including the masks that you were involved with? Sure. So again, I'm going to go back to first principles, right? Yeah. So when we set up our constitutional system, both at the federal level in, in New York, we, we ensured uh, certain rights the majority can never take for us, right? While we wanted a democracy, the democracy, no matter how many people voted in favor of something or wanted something, could never take certain rights away from you. Those are what we, everyone knows is the Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. And these rights are what keep a free people free. So the ability to talk with your doctor without being restricted under the First Amendment, the ability not to be seized by the governor for quarantine, the, your ability for, uh, not to have medicine forced on you is a Fourth Amendment right, right? Because at that point, they're seizing your body and they're, they're forcing you to do this, uh, to take a, a drug. These are our, our basic fundamental rights. And for since the inception of the Constitution in 1787, these, these were mostly respected by the, the governors and the states and the legislatures. Uh, with a, you know, obviously, they crossed the line in the Supreme Court. It wasn't like the first time something was ever declared unconstitutional it was in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. So, but it seems that we've had this kind of pendulum shift where uh, there's this belief in the name of health, in the name of uh, whatever, you know, the, the crisis de jour is, that mm -hmm. that justifies the suppression of constitutional rights. And it's quite to the contrary, right? At the moment of heightened passions, at heightened alarm, is the very moment constitutional rights and individual freedom need to be the most vigilant. 
because at those times, our rights are most at risk. And what you're seeing in California or Governor Hochul here or uh, you know, a lot of other places throughout the United States was that the people who had power, and it's a natural thing, when you have power, you want more of it. They used the crisis to try to seize power and to eliminate people's rights. And it, it is up to the courts and to the people that, look, here's what I always say, you know, now that you mentioned I was running for Supreme Court. One of the things I always tell people, because they don't know a lot about judges, but we have all these rights. But when the state violates your rights, there's this thin line of men and women in black robes mm. who are there to protect it. Right. And if we lose that thin line or that barrier is breached, bye-bye. It's a, it's a very serious matter. Are, are there conversations being had among the, the judicial members of the, I mean, that you know, it's a club. I mean, judges have their own club the way that lawyers have their certain types of, you know, specialties in law have their own club. Are judges talking about this now? I mean, have they seen enough, heard enough, have we in the media reported enough for judges to be concerned about what we're seeing and hearing? So, you know, you're absolutely right to begin with, Christine, right? Judges are very collegial. Mm -hmm. Judges always talk, you know, that, hey, I have this issue. I'll call a judge. A judge will call me. We, or, you know, did you see this decision? How does it impact? Mm -hmm. um, at the moment, I get a feeling that judges are just becoming out of their shell. I think judges were very afraid during COVID, right? Afraid, like, what is my, you know, if I do What's something- What's my role to do? If I do, I met, well, if I do something, is somebody going to die? Is someone going to die? Do I really, mm -hmm. you know, am I, in the, am I the person best to determine what the health measures are required? Uh, I think, and you'll, you see it now in, in a lot of different areas, including Bobby Ann's case, where judges, and I can tell you, at least with my talk with my colleagues, are kind of like that initial COVID shell shock, like, oh my goodness, if I make the wrong decision, people die. That mm -hmm. reticence, and in some ways there should be judicial reticence, right? Judges aren't going to be overriding the power or the will of the majority very easily. It's mm -hmm. only when you have to. But I think there was, whatever that natural hesitation was, it was elevated because of COVID. I think uh, that is receding now. And people are starting to wake up. Does did this quarantine, from what you can share with us, do you think this quarantine came about because of, quote unquote, the emergency use acts, whether they're on the state level or the, or the federal level? Because even, you know, 10 days ago when President Biden was on 60 Minutes and he said the pandemic's over. And I thought to myself, well, then hold a press conference and rescind the Emergency Use Act, because the Emergency Use Act seems to be the excuse to keep keep it going. And I understand, I think you have three Emergency Use Acts in New York right now. I think monkeypox, COVID, and I forget the third one. Right. Uh, maybe polio now, because I know maybe. polio was a, a big issue recently, I read. But... Look, we've always dealt with health crises on, I mean, this isn't the first time that we've had, you know, the Spanish flu or, you know, all sorts of diseases we, we, we've dealt with, but we always had an order. 
right? And there was all this process to make sure we got things right. We recognized religious exemptions. We, we, had, a, we had crafted really over from 1907, there was a case called Jacobson going forward. For about 130 years, we had crafted a, a pretty good balance. And it, almost overnight, that was washed away. Right. Explain to the audience, Judge, about the Jacobs case, because the, I'm not an attorney, but I know that it is mentioned a lot as sort of the precedent, or, or the, like, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess the, the bar. Yeah, precedent is the right word. So okay. now, and, and by the way, I'm going to start as the caveat. Jacobson was at like a 1907 case, mm -hmm. um, approximately. I could be off by a, a, a couple of years. And so a lot of what our, our current constitutional structure hadn't been developed yet. But here's the essence of what it was. When you arrived in the United States, you had to be uh, receive certain vaccines. Uh, you could assert an objection to that vaccine. But if you did, you had uh, to pay what amounts today in terms of dollars, a $10 fine. And the Supreme Court said, uh, that amount, that small amount of fine was not an owner's enough penalty as to deter someone from exercising their rights. So whatever we may think of that, because mm -hmm. the, the religious liberties and due process evolves over the course of the next century. The 19th century really evolves. And Justice Gorsuch and Justice Alito have written extensively that Jacobson is really limited to to what it was in 1907, and that the religious liberties clause, as we understand it now, would override Jacobson, uh, not even with a, a de minimis fine. And so what we're talking about is that there was always a way, if you objected on religious grounds, which is what the objection to Jacobson was, that there was an escape hatch that wasn't onerous. In other words, you didn't lose your job. You didn't, you couldn't, you know, well, you can't go to school. You, you know, you, you can't get any government benefits. Like, you know, the whole penalty structure where it isn't really a choice. What it is, it's no choice or in essence, we're going to deprive you with very, very serious penalties. In fact, one of the things that wasn't talked about, but it, it probably should, is the penalties imposed for not getting vaccinated, there is, a, there is the Eighth Amendment prohibits excessive penalties, excessive fines, as well as people know for the cruel and unusual punishment. I'm not talking about that. Mm -hmm. But nothing, the, the Eighth Amendment says nothing the government can do can be disproportional to the offense committed. And it seemed to me, no one had quite made the argument yet, although I think it started formulating a little bit near the end of the pandemic, that the penalties were so disproportional to what the government was seeking, the benefit of the vaccine. Because, you know, the vaccine certainly at its inception was promised, no, if you had it, you could neither get the virus nor transmit the virus. That was the, that was the sales pitch. That was the sales pitch. So on the one hand, when you say no, you can't get it, nor can you transmit it, the government's interest in that vaccine is at the highest. Now, it goes down to, well, certainly you, you can transmit it 
and you're you're likely to have less severe. That's their the symptoms if you're vaccinated. Leave aside whether that's true or not true for the moment. Mm-hmm. That's their that's the best claim they make now, right? So where they are now is at a very low level of benefit, public benefit for taking the vaccine because it's really a personal benefit. I won't quote unquote get as sick if I didn't have the vaccine. And that right. obviously when you say that incremental benefit to public health comes with such a huge cost, you get disproportional issues. So when we take a look at doctors who who worked at hospitals, I, I know several doctors who worked at hospitals and, and they were very high in their field, critical care, ICU, ER doctors, uh, rated some of the best in the major cities and, and some of the best hospitals in the country. And they chose not to get it and they lost their jobs, just like firemen lost their jobs, just like people who, who worked in you know, some of the financial houses in Manhattan. If you d- chose not to get it, you couldn't come into the office and they would give you, you know, maybe four months to think about it. And then if you chose not to do it, they might cut your salary down or you'd lose your job completely and you might not get your pension if you're a government employee. How does, how does the judicial body, now that we know that if you take the shot, you can transmit it. It doesn't prevent the disease. I mean, do you think that this, there's a certain level of fraud here that this was intentional because they, they did know ahead of time? You know, I think someone's going to have to develop all the, the evidence on that. Now, I know there's a book that someone recently sent me by Naomi Wolf. Mm-hmm. called Our Body or Others People's Bodies. I can't quite remember the title. I read it very at the speed of light, right? So what is going to happen is going to these there's going to be evidence that comes out, right? And it's always the question, what did you know and when did you when know? When did it? you know it? That's right. And that those and, who, are, and who knew it at the time? Right. But but whether or not there's fraud and malice and all this kind of stuff turns on the, what was known and when it was known. And then, well, if I did all this knowing, then yeah, then you have real problems. It, potentially, potentially criminal liability if people were injured with, you know, had vaccine injuries and you, you, you knew it and did it. In fact, right, I mean, everyone who's in your audience probably is familiar with all the tobacco litigation, right? It, it wasn't the fact that cigarettes cause cancer that was the problem for tobacco companies is that they had all these memos saying we know that it caused cancer and they went out saying it doesn't cause cancer that it's actually healthy for you and that's what made the cigarette companies ultimately liable when these memos were disclosed and they knew the dangers of the product yet they told the public that it wasn't dangerous and what's good for the tobacco companies is good for the government, right? You can't have one set of rules that applies to R.J. Reynolds and another that applies to the FDA or you know Dr. Fauci or, or whoever. I, I'm not. I don't right. want to pick on any names in particular, but the idea that if you know something is harmful, you tell people it's not harmful, and then they get sick or die, you're responsible. So, how long have you been on the bench? How long have you been practicing law, I should say? I've been practicing law 34 years now. 
Okay, so so we're somewhat in the same generation. I've been in the news business for forty years. All right. So my so my question to you is: Have you ever seen anything like this that would that that happened so quick that revealed itself? It's not one hundred and eighty degrees, but we know that there's something wrong with the way this was sold in twenty twenty in the beginning of twenty twenty one during the rollout for the vaccination. Have you ever seen anything quite like this from a legal perspective before during your career? I, I can't think of anything that even parallels this slightly. And, and I hate to, because I'm not saying it's a comparison. So mm -hmm. No one should do it. But if, if everyone remembers kind of at the aftermath of 9-11, there was a lot of surveillance things about, I mean, there was just this Kind, of, I understand the reaction, but it was, and it, it, it it's apples and oranges, but but there was all. But it's a catastrophic of, reaction. Catastrophic reaction, and there was a demand for the reduction of civil rights, right? Mm -hmm. What whether it was justified, and I'm not saying that. I'm saying anytime you that there is a a a, a fear event, and COVID was a fear event. I mean, mm -hmm. I remember when it first came north. I don't know, man. I'm going to be very very cautious. I, you know, it's, it, it, it emanates from China. It comes from in the same region as there was a bio lab. Who knows what this is, right? So everyone w was naturally cautious. And, you know, anytime there's a fear event, the government can justify the restrictions of liberties. Uh, and so, but at some point when kind of we all exhale and can take a good measure, right? What, what is justified or was may, may have been justified in March of 2020. Now we're in October of 2022. Our eyes are open. We understand it. We understand things like mortality rate and comorbidities and treatments and the, how it's going to, what, what, you know, you can and can't do, you know, all these things that we had no idea in, in March of 2020. Um, so, as and I and I may reference this, I think as kind of the fear of COVID is receding, right? The point the president said the you know the, the crisis is over, right? Where uh, it's true. I mean, the crisis of COVID is over. I think whether or not the government says so, the people have said so, right? Go to an airport and hop on an airplane. Uh, you know, I mean, people have decided to. In light, even though the virus is still out there, even though people are still getting sick, people have said, okay, I'm talent of this risk. I'll do these things. I will get the vaccine. I won't get the vaccine. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, whatever. People make all sorts of decisions. People, they wear masks. You know, everybody should, you know, you do you. That's my kids. That's what my kids say to me. You do you, dad. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, that's why I think most Americans have come to the conclusion is you do you. So what do you think the fallout's going to be? Because after 9-11, we had the Patriot Act. And I remember when, when they were voting on that and a lot of people hadn't read the, the volume of it and people said, we'll just vote on it. We'll figure it out later. And then people said, you know, this, this is not such a good idea because how it was implemented. Do you think now um, that, that there are going to be more challenges like what Bobby and Fox has done in the courts? Yes, I do. 
I do. Are you hearing, are you hearing about any different types of suits of that level when we say, you know, because she basically said she learned about this and said, well, this is unconstitutional. And bless her heart, she decided to do something about it before it became a precedent in New York. And then it becomes a state precedent for other states that might want to implement it for political reasons or for cash reasons. Um, because, you know, I'm, I'm a corruption uh, journalist, so I always follow the money. Who's getting paid for what? Even even when they had the rollout in uh, in America in 2021, I said, okay, they closed the churches in 2020. Now they want to open them for COVID events, you know, to administer the shots. And then we're spending $2 trillion on the rollout. And, you know, I'm asking people, how much money, how much money were you paid to do that? Yep. I mean, that's a big motivation, right? Um, and there was lots of money going around in, in COVID. Uh, uh, Billion. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, at unprecedented levels for in such a condensed time. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and you know, there certainly there are certain companies that uh, whose stock prices doubled, tripled, quadrupled over over that time. Um, so, but I to answer your question um, is, I do think there's going to be a number of challenges, right? There's going to be a number of places that are going to linger where, you know, it's one of those things is once any government agency or government official has gained a power, they don't let go of that power easily. Right. It is something that's got to be clawed back by the people. And I think uh, you're going to see suits now coming for loss of employment for people who were fired. You're going to you're going to see a lot more litigation, and I think a lot more of that litigation will be successful because I do think judges feel freer, right? They feel the they don't feel the burden that they're making life and death decisions. They feel like they're making normal decisions that they're that they're used to, right? Mm -hmm. They're very used to. Hey, someone got fired. Was it a rightful firing or a wrongful firing? And so I, I think you'll get a sense of uh, judges trying to uphold the law without being deferential to a crisis that has receded, which is very important because, you know, during the crisis, there was a lot of, a lot of things that were of questionable law. I wrote a long decision about depriving criminal defendants the right to a hearing. Uh, when you were charged with a felony under New York law, you can't be in jail more than a week without going before a judge to see if there's evidence to keep you in jail on a felony. And Governor Cuomo extended that. And I, you know, I wrote a decision saying, look, it all seems good in the short run. You know, no one wants to have people in court, but in the crisis, it always seems good. And taking away liberty always seems good. And I cited Karamatsu, which is the case where FDR interned the Japanese. Right. Right. I mean, it always, hey, that seems, hey, FDR, great decision. You know, it always seems good until you look back in history and they'll go, what were you doing? What were you thinking? What were you, yeah. Where, where, what were you thinking at the time? That's correct. So, so, so tell me a little bit about um, your judicial bench. What kind of cases normally come in front of you? So I hear um, uh, the, the full, everything that arises in, in my city and also they, I get assigned because the help backlog in Troy and Albany. So I said Albany and Troy and Cajones. Um, and so we hear every criminal case that arises in those things. 
when it first starts. Ultimately, if it's a serious case, it's tried up in the, the higher court, in the superior court. If it's just a misdemeanor, but when you first are charged, you come before me. If you're, if you're charged with a felony, you have to have a hearing to determine if there's probable cause to hold you. We do all the search warrants, the suppression of evidence. On the civil side, we do case, smaller cases, cases under $25,000 uh, that, that the higher court uh, doesn't hear. And we do our small claims cases under $5,000. Uh, and we do all the housing court cases, all the landlord tenant type cases are before us. Uh, that's our jurisdiction, basically. So the, the you're, you're running for the New York State Supreme Court. Which and... is our highest trial court, not our, it's, people have a misnomer sometimes. Well, New York has a misnomer. People misunderstand it. I know because your your court systems have different names sometimes compared to some other ones. So tell us about tell us about the job that you hope to serve. So Supreme Court is is a, uh, is our highest trial court. Uh, they, we certainly do the, the the most serious criminal cases and the largest civil cases. You know you know the the huge multi million dollar commercial litigation the you know uh, the the serious murder cases. Oftentimes Supreme Court will hear, but in addition. And as your viewers start wanting to think about who they vote in, it is the Supreme Court judges when someone challenges the constitutionality of a statute, of a rule, of a regulation, who hear that. They hear the evidence and they make the, the ruling and they whether or not there should be an injunction, in other words, to stop it while the case is being fully heard. It's an important aspect of the role of a Supreme Court judge in New York is that they hear, especially the ones in Albany. What is it that you like about serving on the bench? Uh, it's just when you hear people in their cases, it's people are so fixated on being heard sometimes rather than being right. And what I love about the job is I'll give people, usually some within time limit, the opportunity to fully vet. And the other side will fully vet. And then we can talk reason, which is because most of my civil cases, no one wants to go to the expense of a jury trial. So I, you know, I've probably done over a thousand bench trials in my seven years on the bench. And so it's the ability to sit and listen to evidence and witnesses sort it out, uh, let people have their say and then make a decision. Uh, you know, it's so it's, it's always very interesting that, you know, we had bail, bail, we're the judges who set bail, the city court judges. Uh, one of the decisions I wrote in February 2020 said it violated the state constitution, that the legislature couldn't take from judges what uh, belongs to judges. And uh, our local paper, the Times Union, wrote a great editorial. No one ever appealed it because they didn't want it, it you know, left unchallenged. But, it, it, you know, it's very exciting court because you get a lot of things happen fast. You know, it's not, you know, we're not a court where we sit on a case for 18 months. You get it and it's disposed of probably within a month or two. So when you take a look at uh, the quarantine case that, that, you, that you helped Bobby and Fox on, which I think is a very important case, because I would hate to see that as set as a state precedent for other states. What do you think that the greatest strength is for, I mean, if in fact, Letitia James and the governor go forward with their appeal, which, you know, 
I think it's fair to say it's not it's not going to happen before election day because they're up for election. So that's the political arm of you know uh, using the court system. But if they in fact decide to file, what's the the strength of that case and what's the weakness of that case? So the the real strength of the case, and and this is what the trial court found, the trial judge, the Supreme Court judge, uh, found is that it was a gross violation of due process. So there was two issues that that the case raised. One, a bunch of legislators brought the 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 case saying, "Hey, the governor can't pass a law by just writing a regulation. That law was before us. We didn't pass the law." She can't, in essence, if the legislature refuses to pass a law, then turn around and write a regulation. I think mm -hmm. that's a very, very important aspect of the case. But I'd, uh, uh, when I say that, um, that wasn't the real strong basis on which the court found it, although I do think it's a very strong basis. Well, it's, 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 like, it's like saying on the federal level, if uh, the House and the Senate in D.C. are not going to pass a law, then you know the the Oval Office can sign an executive order, but that's what we're seeing today. We are, and that's that's the 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 importance of separation of powers. This is what our and I'll get back to your other question in just a second. Mm -hmm. But that is the most important component that keeps us free, right? That that's what the framers were talking about. If any one branch could take the power of each of the other, we all be lost. Right. Mm -hmm. Each has got to be independent and strong. And they understood if they were, they'd be they'd be balancing each other out and no one could override the other. But it also takes when the governor does something like that, it takes a strong justice like we had in, in Bobby Ann's case, a strong justice to say, no, you're out of bounds. Mm -hmm. Right. You're out of bounds. It's look, I referee or I used to referee lacrosse for a long time and. You know, you look down. If someone steps out of bounds, you blow the whistle all the way. Now, not and I've noticed during the course of meetings, not often did someone barely step in that line thought I was right when I called the ball out of bounds or I called him out of bounds. Everyone throw their hands up and, and yell. But that's what a judge has got to do. You got to understand the side that loses is going to throw their hands up and yell. And in this case, what what what, what makes this so strong? It doesn't even have. The, the veneer of due process, right? They didn't even bother to create even a fig leaf. They, the governor's regulation said, we don't need due process because if, if we invoke it, it's an emergency and therefore due process is out the window. And luckily, I think, is that the case is being heard in the absence of an emergency because now we can all be cool and rational and actually say, you know what? This is not a great idea. You know, we're not. Well, again, it goes back to that reduction of fear over time that you mentioned earlier. Yes. So it's a different it's a different climate for the court. It's a to different hear. climate for it. And so it the timing worked very well. And I, I, I think across the states, across the uh, all 50 states and even the federal government, a couple of federal courts have had the, whether it was the airlines or some other stuff have kind of started saying, OK, what whatever you did two years ago, that that chapter is closed. We're getting back to the normal rule of law. You, at the FAA, can't say you can wear a mask on on an airline. That's the, that belongs to the Congress. You can't you can't, Mr. President, say 
make up rules. The rules making belongs to the Congress. Uh, and, and we're seeing things across the country like this, you know, where we're, we're returning to, to normalcy, hopefully. Maybe uh, absent in places like California, maybe. What, what about the vaccinations, though? Because still on, on some, uh, I was invited to a university uh, and I noticed on the invitation, it, the only people that for this particular event, the only people that can attend are people who are vaccinated. So that gets into the, you know, needing to needing to have a mask. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering, will we ever get back? Will we ever get rid of that? Because I know that if you take a look at this on the international stage, <clears throat> And there are a lot of people pushing for this, including the Biden administration, for the vaccination passport. So it seems to me they're going to hold on to some elements of these restrictions. And they're, they're, that's why I think this is so important, a case in New York about the quarantine. If you have just a chip and a second chip, they can be, become a magnet, you know, and then all of a sudden there's a basis to end up where they want to go, which is to have vaccination passports worldwide and injections in 7.7 billion people on the planet. I mean, the WHO came out in May of 2022, right before their General Assembly meeting. And they have they have said that this is their policy, 100% worldwide of healthcare workers should be vaccinated. Uh, I mean, that's a goal. Their goal is to have anybody who's 60 years of age and older vaccinated, regardless of their health. They want to have everybody, regardless of age, 100% worldwide who have underlining conditions. So if we have that hanging out there and we have Biden saying that, you know, the, 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 the pandemic is over, but we still have quarantine on the books in New York and doctors in California can't have an honest patient doctor relationship conversation. And we have hospitals in America dictating what they are going to administer to your body. I mean, we, we, we it, it, this, this fear may have decreased, but the elements are still there to put together the, the pieces of the pie for the end goal, which is the vaccination passport. Sure. And that, very perceptive, I, I, I will add, right? So what happened was you wound up early on in the pandemic with all these cases, mm -hmm. right? The very early, the first wave of cases. And as that was, was coming up, the, there was a bunch of precedents issued by these courts out of, an, in my opinion, an abundance of, of caution, right? Out of whatever it was, fear, caution, deference, that may not have been made if it if it wasn't COVID and the, 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 that kind of panic, but as the water receded, those barriers are still there, right? You know, mm -hmm. we, we may be back on dry land, but you have this precedence, and these precedents don't. No one can say measure them in the terms. Well, that was because we were right. So. It has to be based upon law as opposed to the climate of the time. Right. You don't measure the, the strength of opinion based upon the climate, to your point. So it will it will take, I think, some challenges. And I think there's some, I, I hate to speak without looking up, there, there are some making their way to the Supreme Court right now. And I think ultimately we're going to, uh, you know, 
they'll take the, the, the higher level federal courts or the higher level state courts to kind of pick up these pieces and kind of discard them. But it's going to be a process and it, it, it will never be clean again, right? There, there will always be this residue of these decisions which will empower the government to do things that won't be kind of wiped away. It, that'll be part of a legal landscape for a long time to come. And it's unfortunate, it's unfortunate because we didn't have this the way we have it today, you know, 25, 30. We, we didn't have it. I mean, we, we lost, we still have to take our shoes off going through uh, TSA at the airport. I don't think we'll ever be able to go through TSA without our shoes take, you know, being removed. But I mean, th there are certain things when those things happen, it's tough to get back to, to the right. pre 9-11 days. Um, so and when you- And it'll be tough bring pre-COVID days, right? There's just gonna be certain things because of the legal precedent that the, go the government will be able to do unless there's ultimately a challenge in, in the state's highest court or Supreme Court. So when you run for a judge, do you, do you run on a platform? Well, I'm appointed now, but no, I'm running now. Mm -hmm. um, really, their judges are kind of apolitical. I mm -hmm. always say, look, there's three things that you want in a judge. One is they have to be competent. And, you know, I can, you know, I've been a lawyer for 34 years. I went to Cornell Law School. I've tried hundreds of cases and I won a case before the U.S. Supreme Court. I've been a judge for seven years, you know, published more opinions than any other city court in our area during that time. So, like, so that, that's the competence piece. And then you, the other thing I always, I've been arguing to people, or like, maybe that's a my lawyerly word. Uh, <laughs> I've been trying to, to tell people is, is that judges not only have to be competent, but they have to be courageous, right? One of the tough things about being the judge, you are, and I mentioned you're kind of that last line of defense. And you have to, you're not like a state legislature or state assemblyman or governor, right? Who, uh, you know, who wants to do things to get the approval of the majority of voters. You mm -hmm. oftentimes have to do things that are anti-majority, that are unpopular. And if you don't have judicial courage to do the unpopular thing, you know, you're not going to be a good judge. You're going to be a rubber stamp. And then the last thing, besides having the, the competency and, and the courage, you have to have what, what I would call trust, right? That when you make the decisions, the biggest strength of the judiciary historically is that the people trust the judges when they make a decision. Uh, one of the things I like to tell people, I've been appointed by both Democrats and Republicans to positions of public trust. I, uh, when I'm, I've made some controversial decisions, but they've even been lauded by my opponents, right? Which is to say that if they aren't just, bam, I'm going to punch you in the face, it requires to be a judge to be very sober, very reasoned, very analytical, recognizes the strengths and weaknesses of every position, and don't overrule, right? I mean, I don't mean overrule in the sense of reversing something. Don't extend your ruling beyond what is necessary to reach the result of the case, right? Don't try to make sweeping uh, pronouncements because that's not your role. Your role is to decide the case before you. Now, it may well be as you decide the case, it has consequences beyond your case, as every case does. Mm -hmm. uh, but you have to be 
circumspect in how you do that as not to violate your public trust in your job. Speaking of trust, before before we phase out of this interview, speaking of trust, um, in May, when we were out, uh, my colleagues and I were out in Ohio, uh, the night uh, covering the Ohio primary and, and some COVID uh, events, and we were in the hotel room, and I, I called my colleague you know, down the hall, and I said, the Supreme Court leak just happened. Mm. What did you think, and I'm not gonna ask you about the, the, the case itself, but just as a judge, because I, 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 and somebody who's been covering politics for such a long time, I thought to myself, wow, wow. I wonder if they'll ever find out who did that. Well, because that, that, I mean, that, that's the trust of, I mean, to me, most of the judges I know, they are, they're, they're sobering, um, you know, they're animated in their, in their personal lives, but sobering in terms of, of their responsibility for the bench and the work that they do. And I just, I thought to myself, boy, the inside, they must have felt so violated. So violated. Um, you, you know, the thing is, right, governors have police or presidents have army and executive branch and legislatures have billions and trillions of dollars to spend. Judges have nothing but their reputation, right? Mm -hmm. That's the coin of the realm. And part of the Supreme Court has always been this collegiality among the justices that they could freely discuss a case. They could send around these draft opinions with the ability for, to have frank discussions with their colleagues without it being leaked out to the public. So they didn't have to be guarded, right? They could be candid with one another. And in the history of the court, nothing like that remotely had ever happened. Remotely had ever happened. And uh, I think that probably shook that court to its core, right? Who do you trust anymore? Uh, you know, they went away. Now I think it's got to be circulated in paper. It's got to be on special paper. So they, you know, it, 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 you know, they interpose all these draconian rules that, you know, that, that, that kind of breaches the sense of collegiality, right? It, it's, it just communicates you can't trust What's happening if I have to jump through hoop A, B, C, and D before I can look at a, a draft opinion? And, you know, it's very important for judges, especially on appellate courts, to work, to have a consensus. And Justice Roberts, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be political or positive or negative yeah. anyway, prides himself, like, of trying to make as many cases, supermajority cases, to make sure dissents are respectful uh, you know, he, he uh, to that point, really had done a, a very masterful job on a lot of sensitive cases, even when he was in dissent, of having the court present a front that decision was based on legal disagreements, not on political uh, uh, accounts. And the leak was definitely for political purposes. Oh, of course. Right. Of course, it was the beginning. It was, I mean, the, the Texas primary had happened several weeks before, but that May 3rd was the, was the beginning of the, the real primary season for the midterm elections this year. So you had the, you had the Supreme Court leak, then you had the January 6th hearings in June, you know, and it just goes on and on. So it, it's, it's, 
it was absolutely done for political reasons. But I can't. Yeah, and it's just a shame the court the court can't do that because once it's done, if, if the if the court system is just the legislature or the executive, then they're going to have the same esteem as the legislature and the executive. And I got to tell you, most people don't hold a lot of esteem on individual exceptions apply, but you know most of the public don't hold those institutions in high regard. Well, a lot of people don't like my institution, so you, you guys aren't alone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's just the way it is. Um, well, uh, how do people find how do people find out about you? Because you're on the ballot, they need to know your name. So, what's your website? Do you have one? Do judges yep. have websites? Yeah. Well, during their campaign period, there's a window right. where you can. So yep. ours is Judge Marcel, M A R C E L L E, JudgeMarcel.com. All right. And you, do you campaign out on, how do you like campaigning? Um, I actually don't mind it. I like, you know, I've eaten a lot of chicken over the last uh, four months. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, certainly, by the way, COVID isn't too rampant. I must have shaken probably two, 3,000 people's hands. And, uh, but it's, it's always, look, one of the things about a judge, I think most judges tell you, you can be very isolated, right? Sure. Because you, you're in the book, you're in, you're in the books, you're writing, you're, you're not, it's not, you're not having a, you're not in the middle of a party. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you, you don't go out and meet the public. You don't like, like legislators do. They're always having an, an event or a forum. You don't hold public forums. You know, you listen to a bunch of lawyers talking to you all day long, which only has, you know, two at a time, maybe a couple more, but, you know, it, it, it's kind of limiting. You know, the highlight for a judge is a jury trial. When all the jurors come in, you can feel like a human being talking to people. Uh, but in one sense, it's very nice to be out to meet people, to talk to people about the law, about what judges do and things of like that. So I actually, strangely enough, kind of enjoy it. Well, I, I really want to say that I've enjoyed this conversation with you, Judge. And I, and I hope that you do win because you got involved with stopping you know, and helping Bobby and Fox um, on this quarantine case that doesn't, that obviously affects New Yorkers. But I take a look at the broader picture of what's going on in terms of the news and politics and everything like that and the precedent for the last almost three years now having to do with COVID. And and I think it's a good thing that what she did because she did it for America, not just for New Yorkers. So I just want to say this as an American. I think I think that case is draconian. There's no due process taking anybody out of their homes just because somebody decides and you don't know where you're going. You don't know who's paying the bill. <laughs> you don't even need a reason. I mean, it's, you know, it's not just, it's not just losing your job over COVID. It's you could, you, 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 you could be living in, you know, God knows where. Yep. God knows yep. where. I mean, I know, that, I know in New York city, and this is just on another side note, but on New York city, there are discussions about, you know, putting immigrants on cruise ships now. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 out of the box thinking. So if you've got this much imagination that's over the cliff, you need people like you and Bobby and Fox to stop it before people, you know, the sheep keep on heading to the cliff and they think they're birds and they can fly, but they're going to go crash. (laughs) Very good analogy. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, And please come back and good luck with your campaign. Anytime. Thank you.